Good morning. I, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and fasten your seatbelts, because we've got some, we've got a challenging passage in front of us, and uh, it's going to, might be a little bumpy ride up into the mountains of scriptural truth, but if we hang in there, we'll get some beautiful views at the summit that are encouraging to us in our walk with the Lord. Do you know the Scriptures and the power of God? Do you know God's Word and God's power? Do you know His pure and perfect words and His mighty and powerful works? Do you live your life on the basis of God's will revealed in Scripture and on the basis of God's will, on the basis of His power to do what He has promised to do. Most people do not live this way. Most people think and live within the limited framework of human wisdom and human power, and that is what the Sadducees did which we'll learn about. But Jesus calls His followers to live in the expansive framework of God's wisdom and God's power. Which path are you on? Which framework is shaping your life? Let me read Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Holy Scripture says, And Sadducees came to Him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring." Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the living and abiding Word of God would have its way in our hearts and our minds this morning, and we pray that you would transform us and open our eyes by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage unfolds in three parts. First, we meet the Sadducees. Second, we hear the Sadducees question to Jesus, and then third, we receive Jesus' answer to their question. So let's, let's walk through the passage. In verse 18, we meet the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were a distinct group within Judaism, first century Judaism. They tended to be cultural and religious elites. They were influential within the Sanhedrin, Judaism's ruling body. They ran in priestly social circles. You can see that in Acts 5.17. They did not believe in the future resurrection of those who die, as Mark tells us in verse 18. And in this regard, they were very different from the Pharisees. Acts 23.8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Sadducees had an anti-supernatural bent. They did not believe in a future resurrection. They did not believe in a future final judgment. They believed that a man's soul died when his body died. End of story. They were men of the world, this present world. And they lived and thought as men who cared about this present life, the here and the now. They were religious, but theirs was a secularized religion, a utilitarian religion. They cared about their position, power, and influence within first century Judaism. They recognized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative, but they granted less authority to the prophetic writings and the Psalms. Hang on to that because that's going to come up later. The Pharisees and Sadducees were distinct and different groups within first century Israel, but their spiritual DNA is characteristic of perennial impulses in the human heart. Where you find so-called Christian people believing many of the right things and caring deeply about doing what is right to the point of meticulous attention to proper conduct and adding their own rules on top of God's commands and keeping their distance from rule breakers, there you have modern-day Pharisees. On the other hand, where you find so-called Christian people who turn certain biblical teachings into mere ethics and tactics for social change and political movements and economic theory and cultural influence, but they reject the Bible's supernatural teaching and eternal perspective, there you have modern-day Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees have this in common. They both need to be born again. Jesus said to a Pharisee, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. Moving to verses 19 through 23, we see that some Sadducees ask Jesus a question. Their question is designed to mock the belief in future resurrection and to put Jesus on his heels. In the presence of Jesus, however, what their question actually does is expose their own foolishness. And their question shows that they are strangers to the kingdom of God. The que- their question is built on instruction that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. I'm not going to turn there or read that passage, but that's the passage that the Sadducees are referring to. If a man's brother dies... Uh, leaving a wife but no children, then the, surviving, the, the, the brother who was still alive was to demonstrate love for his brother and for his brother's name and for his brother's legacy by marrying his widow and raising up 
a child that would bear her original husband's name. A great act of brotherly love. So the Sadducees invent this fanciful scenario where there's seven brothers and each in turn has the same childless wi uh, widow as a wife and then they all, they're all dead and then they ask in the resurrection when everyone is alive again which they don't believe in whose wife will she be? Tricky, sneaky, clever. Remember, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that these seven brothers and the woman will rise again, which means that in their view, the apparent complexity of this hypothetical situation is an argument against the resurrection. They're thinking, since the resurrection would create such maddening complexities as this one about the woman with seven husbands, the resurrection must not be a real thing. This is very sad, by the way. These smug, self-assured, country club-loving Sadducees, impressed by their own cleverness, with a smile on their face, actually think that they are outwitting the teacher. Their question is childish. If inquisitive young children asked that question, that would be one thing. That would be a teachable moment. But these are grown men, thinking like fools. Jesus answers their folly in verses 24 to 27. And in his answer, he emphasizes how wrong they are. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 begins with Jesus speaking, Is this not the reason you are wrong? And then verse 27 ends, You are quite wrong. This is fascinating. When we think about assessing someone as right or wrong, we often think, in terms of assessing their answer to a question. But the Sadducees weren't answering a question. They were the ones asking the question. Nevertheless, it is not their place to assess Jesus, but the other way around. Jesus assesses them. Jesus assesses us. He sees through the smokescreen of their question to their hearts and their minds. He knows that they disbelieve in the resurrection, and he knows that their question is designed to promote their disbelief. Thus, he speaks to the heart of their unbelief. You are wrong. And Jesus proceeds to tell them the reason they are wrong in verse 24, and then he describes the nature of the resurrection in verse 25, and then he proclaims the certainty of the resurrection in verses 26 and 27. So let's, let's tackle those one at a time. In verse 24, Jesus tells them the reason they are wrong. It is difficult to overemphasize how important verse 24 is. Here Jesus draws the dividing line between those who know God and those who don't, between those who are on the right track and those who are on the wrong track. Jesus says to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Could there be a more damning indictment? They are elites within Israel. 
but they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. They are religious and move in priestly circles, but they are ignorant of God's Word and God's power. They claim to believe Moses and the first five books associated with Moses, but they don't really know the sacred writings and they don't really grasp the power and strength of Almighty God. What about you? There are many churchgoers and many church leaders in our land who should hear verse 24 as a word to them personally. You are wrong, and you are far down the wrong track because you do not know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. Although in the context of verses 24 to 27, the statement you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God means you don't know God's Word and God's power with respect to the doctrine of the resurrection. It, it applies to their fundamentally wrong-headed approach to all of life. If they knew the Scriptures and the power of God in general, then they would know how to think rightly about the resurrection. If they knew the, uh, the Scriptures and the power of God in general, then they wouldn't come up with clever arguments to use against the resurrection. If, if you know the Scriptures and the power of God, then you will keep your feet on the highway of righteousness. And if you don't, you won't. Let me ask you again. Do you think and live on the basis of God's written word and his incomparable power? Is that the basis of your life? According to Psalm 19, God's word is perfect and sure, right and pure, clean and true, more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Scripture revives the soul, makes the simple wise, enlightens the eyes, and satisfies the heart. In keeping God's word, there is great, re great reward. Furthermore, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our spiritual health. 2 Timothy 3.16. And 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And what about God's incomparable power? The creation itself testifies to his eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1.20. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also, Psalm 95.4. He, he, he calls every star by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing, Isaiah 40.26. His power is unable to be resisted. The Lord says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Every sinner on the face of the earth will either be ruined or redeemed by the power of God. Exodus chapter 15, by the power of God, He hurled Pharaoh and his army into the sea, and by his same power he redeemed the children of Israel and brought them to his holy abode. The same power ruins and redeems. Although the Scriptures and the power of God are not identical concepts, there is a strong connection between God's Word, written or spoken, and God's power. 
God spoke the universe into existence. Genesis chapter 1. God's instruction is like streams of water that makes believers healthy and fruitful. Psalm 1. Jesus upholds the universe by His powerful Word. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Mark 1.27. Jesus commands the wind and the sea and they also obey Him. Mark chapter 4 verses 39 to 41. The Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. This gospel message is the living and abiding Word of God which creates spiritual life in a sinner's heart. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. Do you know the Scriptures and the power of God? Does God's Word and God's power carry you. Man does not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 8, Mark cha- uh, Matthew 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Is that your life, or are you a stranger to such a life? In Mark 7, Jesus blasted the Pharisees because they rejected God's Word in order to establish their own tradition. Now in Mark 12, Jesus blasts the Sadducees for not knowing the Scriptures and not knowing the power of God. Poor Sadducees. They knew the power of rank, the power of influence, the power of wealth, the power of man-powered religion power of the Sanhedrin, the power of Rome. They were pro-Roman sympathizers. You might as well be in league with the powers that be, right? But they didn't know the power of God. They were blind to it. They didn't know it in their own experience, and it didn't hold sway in their approach to life. For the Sadducees, God was like the seven brothers in their fanciful tale, weak, and unable to produce life. And I'm speaking spiritual words to spiritual ears. How many people live with no expectation of a merciful and almighty God coming through for them, whether now or in eternity? For such people, the Bible is a closed book, and God's power is afar off, and so they are left with human wisdom and human power. In verse 25, Jesus briefly describes the nature of resurrection life. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Remember something. The problem with the Sadducees' question is not the question itself, but their their unbelieving mindset behind the question and their use of the question as an argument against the resurrection. I can imagine someone somewhere at some time, who really does know the Scriptures and the power of God, but is, is, is ignorant concerning the, the nature of resurrection life, the life of the age to come, and, and they wonder, is, 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 there marriage, is there marriage in the eternal state? And if someone has had more than one spouse on earth, what, what are the implications of that for the new heaven and the new earth? I can imagine someone asking that kind of question in good faith, but they would also have the mindset that 
I trust God. I know His character. I know His power. He'll work it out. This, this, this situation envisioned by the Sadducees is not going to stump the Almighty. He'll sort it out in a way that is good and right and satisfying to His people. In fact, however, there is no marriage in the age to come. This is what Jesus teaches in verse 25. Marriage pertains to this present life till death do us part. Death terminates the marriage covenant. You can read about that in Romans 7, 2-4. Therefore, everyone who has departed this present life is, after their departure from this life, unmarried. In the resurrection age, men will not marry and women will not be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. This doesn't mean that we will be like the angels in every respect. This doesn't mean that human beings will cease to be male and female. But it does mean that those who are blessed to share in the glory of the resurrection age will not be paired off in marriage, which is like the angels because the angels in heaven are not paired off in marriage. And the rebellious angels who left their proper habitation in order to marry the daughters of men, Genesis chapter 6, they got into big trouble. All that said, there will actually be one glorious marriage in the eternal age. Jesus, the bridegroom, loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church will be unblemished, holy, glorified, and united to her bridegroom forever. And Scripture says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9. Let's move to verses 26 and 27. The most important issue in this passage is not the absence of human marriages in the age to come, but the certainty that the resurrection will actually take place. And so in verses 26 and 27, Jesus proclaims the certainty of the resurrection. Verse 26 begins, And as for the dead being raised, which indicates that that's the issue he's about to tackle. But before we get to the instruction, some additional background is in order. I already alluded to it earlier. One of the problems that the Sadducees had is that they did not hold the Psalms and the prophetic writings in the same high regard as they held the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. One of the reasons that the Sadducees didn't truly know the Scriptures is that they didn't devote themselves to all the Scriptures. They didn't honor the authority of Daniel 12 too, which says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They didn't honor the authority of Isaiah 26, 19, which says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. They didn't honor the authority of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or 
evil. It's difficult to make sense of a passage like that without a final judgment that issues in rewards and punishments. So one of the lessons hidden in our passage is that you need to know all the Scriptures. Nothing more, nothing less. If you take away from God's written word, which the Sadducees did, or if you add to it like the Pharisees did, you're going to get into big trouble. Even so, what is really interesting about Jesus' answer in verses 26 and 27 is that he doesn't refer to one of the obvious resurrection passages in the prophets. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He refers to a passage from the book of Exodus, which is one of the books whose authority the Sadducees acknowledged. He's speaking to them in terms they can understand, at least at some level. Jesus is very specific. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, which directs our attention to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? The Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he replied. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now the obvious question is, how does this statement teach that the dead will be raised? How does this declaration teach the doctrine of the resurrection? Jesus gets to the point in verse 27 when he says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, bear with me here. This is, this is really rich stuff. Like so much of what Jesus says, he is inviting us to open our, our eyes and to see the rich tapestry of redeeming grace that runs through the Scriptures. When God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. So the question is, are they actually dead? Or are they alive? Well, they're physically dead. They have not yet been physically resurrected. But they are not mere corpses, as if all that Abraham was is now decomposed dust. Abraham's body was dead, but Abraham's soul was alive to God. Abraham was in covenant relationship with the Lord, and when he died, he did not cease to be in covenant relationship with the Lord. Abraham remained alive to God. There was a man whose name was Enoch, And he walked with God, and then he was not found, for the Lord took him. There was a man whose name was Elijah. He never died, but the Lord took him straight away to heaven. Surely it's not only Enoch and Elijah who have some existence post-earth. must be true for all of God's faithful people. And although to be... uh, To be human, it is not necessary to be married, as Jesus teaches in verse 25. To be truly human, it is necessary to be embodied. Because that's what it means to be a human being, an embodied soul. If Abraham lives, 
and he must be raised at some point. But there's more, there's more to what's going on here, and it strikes to, at the heart of what you believe about God and his promises and his power to keep his promises. When God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he is identifying himself as the God who makes promises. He makes promises to and he enters into covenant with the people that he redeems. And the question is, is he trustworthy so as to be faithful to his promises? Is he powerful so as to be able to keep his promises? God made several promises to Abraham. Listen carefully to a couple of them. This is really important. I'm going to read from Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14, which says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God promised the land not only to Abraham's descendants, but to Abraham. And did he ever receive it? No. When will Abraham receive what was promised to him? Is God faithful to keep his promises? Is he able to keep his promises? Of course, Abraham will receive what was promised in the age of the resurrection. The, and, and this promise of a future inheritance that is not received until after death and after resurrection, it is not peripheral to true faith. It is central. It was, it was central to Abraham's deliberate and conscious faith. Do you know Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. You should turn there. If you can. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, 
Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The patriarchs did not receive what was promised to them. Will they receive it? Yes, because God is faithful and he will raise them from the dead. And so when God comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he's saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am in covenant with them. I have standing promises to them and to their descendants, and these promises shall be fulfilled. I am God Almighty and I will do it. I want to approach verses 26 and 27 from one more angle and then make a brief application. We're done. Think about it, think about it this way. If God is the Savior of His people, if He redeems His people and forgives their sins and brings them into fellowship with Himself, then it is unthinkable that He won't undo death which is the consequence of sin and the symbol of alienation from God. If God says to you what he said to Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And if all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham, then it is a weak promise if it ends in death for everyone. That's weak. That's lame. Death is not natural. It is the imposition of judgment by God on humanity on account of sin. Will he leave the sign of his judgment on the very people that he has redeemed and brought into his gracious covenant? I just got to share this with you because this is just so beautiful to me. What I just shared with you, I was inspired by this guy named William Lane. Just listen to a few sentences. He says, If God has assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. But it is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant and of which the formula of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is the symbol. Listen. The glory appointed for Jesus 
is not to be the king over an endless succession of people who die. That's not the glory appointed for Jesus. The glory appointed for Jesus is to be the redeemer from A to Z, to make atonement for sin, to break the power of death, and to raise up people who will share in his glory and live with him forever. And and I ask you this question. Do you know the scriptures and the power of God? Do you know the power of Christ's resurrection and the promise of your resurrection? Because it is key to living the life that Jesus calls you to live. He calls you to lay down everything, to leave everything, and to give your life entirely for his sake and for the gospel's sake. That's what he's been telling us over and over again in Mark chapters 8 through 10. To leave houses and lands and family and money, leave it all behind and follow Jesus. Why would you do that? Oh, and you get persecutions. Jesus says you get persecutions in Mark chapter 10. Why would you do that? How will you do that? You will not be able to stay on the path of discipleship if you do not know the power of Jesus' resurrection. The Apostle Paul said that his sufferings were designed to teach him not to rely on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. And you will not be sustained on the path of discipleship if you just think it's all about this present life. There is a future reward. There is eternal life. There is unhindered fellowship with God and with his people forever. And that is your great reward that stands out in front of you. How will you stay faithful to Jesus in China? How will you stay faithful to Jesus on a college campus? How will you stay faithful to Jesus as persecution arises in our own country. You won't unless you know the scriptures and the power of God, unless you know the power of the risen Christ and the promise of your future resurrection. Let's pray. Father, your word says that many will come from the east in the West and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when death is swallowed up forever and we banquet with the Lord and with one another forever. The Sadducees did not believe that you were a faithful and powerful promise keeper. I pray that we would not fall into their error. Grant that we would live all of life fixing our eyes on you and trusting you as the faithful God and the almighty God and the powerful God who will keep your promises. Grant us such courage and strength and willingness to sacrifice and lay it all down for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake and the mission's sake that there would be a great harvest right here in the Oxford Hills. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.